Amen. You can be seated. This morning, I want to thank you, worship team, for, for leading us today. And, uh, man, God is so good. Amen. For those of you maybe that uh, aren't familiar with us at Restoration Church, maybe we do things differently than the, the church that you attend or the church that you're used to, or maybe it's been a long time since you've been in a worship service, and uh, we just try to do what we think the Bible says. And so we look at the Bible, and I think a lot of what we do in the American church is more culture-based than it is biblical-based. Uh, there's really no uh, scriptural support for us all to just come to one room together, a building called the church, and say, hey, you one person up there do everything and we'll just all sit here. Uh, we're supposed to interact with one another. We're supposed to encourage one another and strengthen one another. And the, the Holy Spirit is supposed to use each of us to minister one to another. So we like to give time for that in the service. And sometimes, you know, that uh, feels a little awkward. It feels a little weird. And uh, I would love to tell you that the more you do it, the less awkward it feels. Uh, but that's really not true because sometimes it still feels just awkward and you don't know exactly, is this really God saying this or is this just me saying it? And uh, the only way we can be sure is if we act on what we think the, the Holy Spirit is saying. And so today we're going to continue uh, on a series that we started a few weeks ago called Thriving in Babylon. And uh, it looks at the life of Daniel. If you're not familiar with Daniel, uh, it's a book in the Old Testament and Daniel I don't really have time to go into a lot of the, the, the backstory of the life of Daniel, but Daniel was an Israelite, and uh, they were the people of God in the Old Testament, and they disobeyed God, and God told them clearly, if you disobey me and you don't turn back to me, that I'm going to put you into exile, I'm going to allow other nations to take you, and uh, the, the nation of Babylon comes in, and they take the, these young men into captivity. They take all of the, the young men into captivity, some of the, the ladies into captivity. They kill others, um, and they totally take over the nation of Israel, and they destroy the buildings. They destroy the temple of God, and Daniel and his friends, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, you might know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, go into captivity, and they're put into the service of the king, and through their lives, through their influence, uh, it's crazy that these wicked kings, the nation of Babylon, would easily be compared to American culture today. I mean, just the, the immorality, the greed, the, the hatred, the, the viciousness, the murder. There really is nothing today happening in American culture that hasn't happened at some time in the past. Okay, we like to kind of sometimes trick ourselves into believing that, believing that the world has gotten so bad. It really hasn't. Um, it's always been this bad. And uh, anytime people turn away from God, God lets us turn away from him and he kind of turns us over to ourselves and lets us do whatever we want. And that's a bad spiral. And it actually leads to all kinds of chaos and, and, um, and all kinds of, of wickedness and evil. And uh, you would think that if we all just did what felt right, that that would you know, be good for all of us, but it really doesn't work out. And so these guys, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, are in Babylon, and they actually influence the kings of Babylon. They influence Nebuchadnezzar. They influence Belshazzar. Then the Medes and the Persians come in and take over the Babylonian Empire, and Daniel actually rises to prominence with King Darius and uh, the kings that follow. And so Daniel has a way of really becoming an influential person in a very wicked kingdom. 
And there are a lot of lessons that you and I can learn about how to live in our American culture the same way that Daniel lived in his culture. And we can make the same kind of impact in our world today that Daniel made in his day. And we talked about the, the, the secret of knowing God and knowing that God is at work knowing that God has a plan. Uh, Most of us in the American church react to what's happening around us as if God is lost control. I mean, we act like wickedness is rampant and God has turned his back and uh, he's up in heaven wringing his hands. Now, we don't say that. We claim God is sovereign. We claim that God is in control, but we don't act like it. Because we feel like we have to put down the the political party that we disagree with. We feel like we have to expose every person that's doing something evil in the world. We feel like we have to fight fire with fire. And yet the scripture says when you come into the kingdom, the kingdom is not like the kingdom of this world. We love our enemies. We bless those who curse us. We overcome evil with good. And the church in America, we've kind of bought into this lie that that we've got to make a change and that change is going to come through politics or that change is going to come through social things. If we just, you know, if we just serve people and love people and, and we've kind of gotten away from what Daniel and his friends did and what Jesus called us to and what the early church did. And so we talked about knowing who God is and getting in the Bible And when I say get in the Bible, I don't mean pick out a few verses that you kind of like and make them fit your life so you can do what you want to do. This book can be twisted to make it mean whatever you want it to mean. But God revealed himself from Genesis to Revelation as a complete book so that we would study it, know who he is, and not misuse his word to mistreat other people. In fact, if you use this book to mistreat other people, you've not come to know him. Because he demonstrated his love for us when we were his enemies by giving his life for us. So when he says love your enemies, it's because that's who he is. And that's how you and I've changed. And that's how others are going to change also. Not only do we got to get in the book, but we actually have to do what it says. We get really good at going to church, saying amen to scripture, memorizing scriptures, but we don't actually apply them in our daily lives. And a lot of the time, it's because we're distracted. It's a lot of the time we're just so busy, and we don't mean to not apply it. We just don't realize we're not applying it. And if we don't slow down and let the Holy Spirit take the word and really work it into our hearts, and you can give all kinds of reasons why you don't obey it. Well, you don't know. I mean, I know God says forgive people, but you don't know how that person treated me. Well, you, you don't know how you treated him. And so we have to put his word into practice and then be filled with his spirit and continue to pray or talk to God and live in, and we're going to talk more about this today, in that relationship with him. We talked in part three of this series about knowing our identity or living out what the word of God says, knowing who we are in Christ, making sure that we're not trying to expect people that don't have a relationship with God to act like him. I think sometimes in the church, we, as we've talked about on Wednesday nights, we've believed the lie that at some point in American history, everybody loved Jesus. That's a lie. We believe that all of our founding fathers were Jesus-loving, Jesus-obeying people. No, they weren't. Some of them cut parts of the Bible out that they didn't like. Okay? They all believed in God. They were deists. They loved the morality of the word of God, 
But they weren't all Jesus-loving people. There was never a time in American history where we were up here loving Jesus and now we're on this steady decline. That's not true. All throughout human history, there have been ebbs and flows, as Matt Chandler has been telling us. Ebbs and flows. There have been seasons where people draw near to God and God blesses nations or God blesses people and then they forget that it's God that did that and then they turn away from him. They let themselves get pride. They're like, look at what we did. Our nation's like, hey, look at what we did. America's so great. We did this. No, we did not. Churches do it too. Oh, look at what we were able to do. Wow. No, we did nothing. Or look at the life I've built. Look at the bank account I've built. Every good thing that happens in our lives comes from him. And it's only by him. And we forget that and we turn away from God and then God lets us turn away from him. And he's not judging us. We're gonna talk today. Judgment has already been taken care of. But when God withdraws his hand and pestilence comes or difficulty comes as a result of that, that's not his judgment. That's just him saying, if you don't want me, go ahead, try it. And the moment we recognize, I don't want this life. I want you. He's right there saying, okay, come back. Let's do this. Even when we're unfaithful, he remains faithful. We, and Pastor Mark last week talked about knowing how to pray. And uh, I want to encourage you to read We've, I've encouraged you once to be reading Daniel, Daniel 1 through 6, to, to kind of get an idea of what's going on here. But read Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9. Because when Daniel prays for the nation of Israel, he uses the word we. We have sinned. And I know a lot of church people can get really good at praying for revival in America as if the people out there are the ones that need to change. And we're like, God, oh, heal our nation. Heal all of these people that believe in these evil things. As if there's not pride, greed, slander, gossip, unforgiveness in the hearts of people that claim to be following him. And so when we pray for repentance, let's use the word we. God, we have turned away from you. We have trusted in ourselves and not in you. We have put our trust and our hope in a political party and not in your power. Amen. I'll, I'll amen myself. I thought that was pretty good. So when we pray for and contend through breakthrough, as Matt Chandler again on Wednesday night um, has been challenging us, let's make sure we're, we're, we're praying for uh, our nation as a we. By the way, uh, God promised to, to spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there were 10 righteous. So for those of you that say God's going to judge America, I bet if he finds a few righteous people that just start crying out to him, he would put his hand of grace back on us. So, I mean, you can pick your poison. You can either trumpet that God's gonna judge us or you can just cry out to God for mercy and grace on our nation because that's what's gonna transform the hearts of people. I mean, we can, we can tell them God's gonna judge us and people might get afraid, but fear is a poor motivator. The love of God is what motivates us to be transformed, as we'll talk about. So today we're going to talk about, that's kind of a quick recap. You can find all of these messages on our podcast. You can go back and listen. But today we're going to talk about knowing his agenda. And I've got more sermon than I'm going to preach to you. And so I just have to decide at some point uh, that we've had enough. And uh, we'll see where, where we land when we get there. But 
there are a lot of confused Christians, I want to call them, in America. And they grew up in church, or they grew up knowing about God, but they really didn't know God. And they have some knowledge of God's word, and they have some knowledge of who he is, and they were taught things in Sunday school that they sometimes misapply because they're not in relationship with God. I mean, they know about him, and so they think, if I know about him and I just put these principles into practice, that's all I need to do. That's not God's agenda. God's agenda is not to have good people who fall in line and act very good morally. That is not his agenda for the world. God's agenda for the world is to have a people that belong to him. To have a people that are in relationship with him. Now, he does have a vision for us to start acting like him. For us to actually live the kind of lives that display his character and nature in our world. But it's not by just learning principles and applying them. It's by being in relationship with him. Augustine, one of the the fathers of the early church, called this withness. Withness. W-I-T-H-N-E-S-S. Withness. Understanding that you can't do life for Jesus if you don't do life with Jesus. I want you to think back to your time in Sunday school if as a kid you went there. And, you know, Matt Chandler talks about a story that... Um when he was in, in Sunday school, he remembers, you know, the little instruments that you used to get and you used to sing little really cool songs. And he talks about this song that we used to sing. Maybe you know it. Ready? See if you know this. There'll be no liars there in my father's house, in my father's house, in my father's house. There'll be no liars there. And we're celebrating the fact that there are people going to be kept out of the kingdom of God. And I don't know that our intent was to do that. I think our intent was to tell little children, don't be a liar because you won't be in the father's house because we want our children to be well-behaved and we want them to fall in line. And that's how many of us look at scripture is that God is looking for these people who are good little boys and girls who fall in line and just behave themselves. And we should reflect his holiness because he is holy. And if we don't do that, then he's going to smite us or he's going to judge us or he's in heaven and he's angry at us. How many times do I have to tell you to stop doing that? And that is not the God that has revealed himself in the Bible. Now, yes, God is holy. Yes, God is set apart. He's different and he he tells his people to act like him. But the way we go about that is not looking at the Bible through this moral lens. But I would argue that it's looking at the Bible through a redemptive lens. It's not that morality is wrong. It's just not the foundation. The foundation of this book is not morals. The foundation of this book is the love of God. God is love. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter's telling us, you know, this is God's agenda for you. He wants you to be a chosen people. He wants you to be a royal priesthood. He wants you to be a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness and into, excuse me, his wonderful light. And you know, as Daniel goes into the nation of Babylon and he has influence over these kings, Daniel never once preaches morality to anyone in the kingdom of Babylon. But 
He lives it. He lives a relationship with God. He lives with respect and honor, even for his captors. He asks for permission not to defile himself with the food. He doesn't just try to do it secretly. He doesn't just try to to be rude or mean and say, I am not eating that and throw the the plate across the room. You are filthy Babylonians and God's going to judge you because Daniel understands that the Babylonians, even though they're even more wicked than the nation of Israel, that's who God's using to judge the nation of Israel, whether they like it or not. And Daniel recognizes the sovereignty of God. And in Daniel chapter four, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in this dream, God basically says, Nebuchadnezzar, because you're proud and you haven't humbled yourself before me and you think you're this wonderful king, I'm going to come and I'm actually going to put you out in the pasture and you're going to be a crazy person for, you're just going to, you're going to lose your sanity. And the reason for that is in Daniel chapter three, look at what Nebuchadnezzar says. This is Nebuchadnezzar. I decree The people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save this way. See, Daniel chapter 3 is a story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into a fiery furnace, but God comes and he rescues them and Nebuchadnezzar sees this. And there's a fourth guy in there. And it looks like the son of God. And he has this encounter with God that should have done something. It should have changed the pride in his heart to recognize, hey, it's not my great greatness that put me here. It's God. But he didn't learn that lesson. So he gives him a dream. And when Daniel comes before him and, and gives him the interpretation of what's about to happen, Daniel says... Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, I wish this dream were about your enemies and not about you. And I wonder how many people in, in American culture, Christian culture, if, if our president, whoever it is at the time that you don't like, if you like the current president, then not him. The last one you probably didn't like, so then him. But whoever the president is has a dream, and that dream is that God's going to make them go off and be crazy. How many of us would be like, wish this was about your enemies and not you or how many of us would be like (laughs) I tried to tell you (laughs) and that exposes what's in our hearts not what's in the president's heart and that's the kind of person that Daniel was and then after Nebuchadnezzar comes back to his senses because God doesn't just wipe him out he says now I Nebuchadnezzar Praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That's a pretty profound thing. And it's not like, I'm not trying to tell you, in the books that we've been reading, uh, Thriving in Babylon, The Daniel Dilemma, I want to share a quote with you today because I don't want you to get the idea that I'm saying that you shouldn't be involved in politics, that we shouldn't vote things, that we shouldn't, you know, uh, expect uh, that to be uh, an issue, that we shouldn't speak up on issues. We should do that. And here's the quote from Thriving in Babylon. Jesus's promise to build his church is still in play. So is his promise that the gates of hell cannot hold us back. But we'll have to change our game plan. We'll have to go back to the basics. The methods of the flesh and the methods of this world will have to be set aside, exchanged for the methods and weapons of the spirit, prayer 
obedient living, loving our enemies, and faithfully proclaiming the gospel. These are the weapons that Daniel used. He brought great fame and glory to the Lord despite living his entire life under godless leadership, faced with a constant stream of military, political, and legislative setbacks. So did the early church in Acts, so can we. Now, having said all this, I want to make it perfectly clear. I'm not saying politics are unimportant. I'm not saying Christians should stay out of politics. We live in a democracy. We have the right to influence the public debate. To neglect that right would be foolhardy. I'm simply stating it's a tragic miscalculation to place our hope in political solutions. At the end of the day, no matter how many elections we might win or how many laws we might pass, political power is fleeting. The tide always changes. The ebbs and flows. And the problem is when we try to put our, it's interesting because the dreams that are in the book of Daniel are all about the futility of political kingdoms. And none of them are ever going to work. Ever. Ever. America is not God's kingdom. (laughs) It's just another earthly kingdom. I love it. I love our freedoms. I love our country. I'm glad I live here. But it is not my hope. My hope is the kingdom of God that I have been called into. And I live as a citizen of that kingdom more than a citizen of this country. So my allegiance is not to America first. My allegiance is to the kingdom of God first. And my trust is in the kingdom of God first and his laws. So I don't care if I have the right to treat people wrong. I don't care if I have the right to speak up and speak my mind and treat people the way that that our political parties want to treat each other. I don't have that right in the kingdom. And so I'm not going to live in that because I'm a citizen of the kingdom. As the church, we cannot speak out against abortion and claim to be pro-life in one moment And in the next moment, post a meme on social media that degrades the people that we oppose politically because that is not pro-life. It does not value those people who have been made in the image of God even if their image is marred by sin. Yes, speak out against their choices. Yes, speak out against the evils of our society. But no, do not mock people who are made in the image of God. All Human life is sacred and made in the image of God. So, lest you take my word for it, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to read what the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church. That was a pretty great introduction, don't worry. The rest of my points won't be that long. In fact, I have one point. (laughs) Be compelled by love. There it is. So, First, Second Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this, Christ's love compels us. I want you for a moment to think about what compels you to live out this life, this Christian life. If you've accepted Christ, are you compelled by the love displayed for you at the cross? Or are you, are you compelled by fear, by guilt, by shame, by this idea that God is perpetually disappointed in you, that you're, you're not measuring up. Because, you know, the scripture teaches us that we should be rooted and grounded in love. Yes, we should walk in the fear of the Lord. But we 
aren't to be rooted in the fear of the Lord. We're to be rooted in his love and walk in the fear of the Lord. If God wanted us to be rooted in the fear of God, he would have appeared the way he did in the old covenant on the mountain, thunder and lightning, shaking to scare everyone. And we saw how well that worked, right? Because the Israelites were terrified. And they're like, Moses, don't let God speak to us anymore. If he speaks, we're going to die. You go, you go get God's word and bring it to us. And what happened? A few days later, they're building a golden calf and they're bowing down and worshiping it and saying, this is God who delivered us. Fear is a really bad motivator. And God understands the reason that he demonstrated love is to show us that that's what compels us. And thou, look at this, because his love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. That means when Christ died, you and I who put faith in him died with him. So every sin that I have ever committed in my past, present, or future has been dealt with when he died. That's why we sing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. From past, present, future, all covered in his blood. And if he died for all, look, now it says, and if he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and be raised to life and was raised to life again. Huh, that's interesting. So when I come to faith in Christ and he, he, he takes my sin, I no longer live for myself, but I live for him. But I do it because I'm motivated by the love that now leads to a transformed life. And some, some of you might be like, well, you know, that, that, that's just the one way of saying it. It's the only way of saying it. And if we try to live for Jesus without living with Jesus, we will be perpetually disappointed in ourselves and in the Christian way of life. And if we try to get other people to change because of the fear of judgment, they will be forever disappointed as well. Yes, those, let me, let me find it here. Those who refuse to accept what Christ did for them stand condemned already. Yes, if you refuse to believe that Christ died in your place and make him your savior and Lord, then all you get when this world passes or you pass from this life is eternity in hell separated by God, from God. That is your choice. But your sin did not send you there. Your rejection of Jesus did. Because sin has been dealt with at the cross. And all we have to do now is believe it. To say, yes, I have broken your law. Yes, you did die in my place. And now I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm no longer going to live in sin. I'm going to live for you. Not because I'm afraid of what's going to happen, but because I'm tired of what's happened. 
I don't know anybody that at the end of their life, when they're faced with death, who has just lived their lives for themselves and lived their lives to just whatever felt good to do it, we've been fed this lie. If it feels good, do it. Just be you. Be who God created you to be. No, you have been marred by sin. And if you live for yourself, if you just live like you're the king of the universe, it is going to end in destruction, in futility, in anger. Why do we have road rage today? Why when someone cuts us off are we like, because we think we're the king of the world. We think whatever I want is king. But if everybody lives like I'm the king, how's that going to end well? If we just do what feels good, the end of that road is just death. And God knows that. And that's why he sent his son to pay the penalty for us so you and I can be in relationship with him. And through that relationship with him, he can transform our lives and bring us into salvation. Matt Chandler says it this way. What God is after is a relational connection with you and I that leads to a transformed life filled with the Holy Spirit, setting us free to live for God and not for ourselves, Then that then lines up with life as it was meant to be lived. And too many of us are feeling like when we picture God, he's like angry and frustrated. I want you to know something today. The moment you accept Christ as your Savior and Lord, and the moment you get baptized as the public declaration of that, God is well aware, well aware, of every time in the future that you are going to blow it. I know you might be surprised by some of them and might think, oh, you know, I don't know why God loves me. Okay, when you were at your worst, he loved you. So why would it change now? I mean, the Apostle Paul, when he's talking to the Galatians church, says, why are you trying to, to, to live out your salvation in your own strength and power? Did you receive salvation because you were good people? No, you received it by God's grace. Did you receive the Holy Spirit because you were good people? No, because you received it by God's grace. So why are you now trying to be good people in your own strength and power? It's only through your connection to Christ. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And that's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 through 21 is where, what Paul is trying to tell us. So he goes on and he says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Now, I know that there are Bible verses that say that you'll recognize people, what kingdom they're in by their fruit. I, I, I know it's there. But I want you to read John chapter 15. Jesus says, I am the true grapevine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. What have they been purified by? The message I have given you. You haven't been purified because you're good people and you're all, you're, you've, you've fallen in line. You have been purified by the message I've given you. Remain in me, witness, and I will remain in you. Because a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. Apart from me, you can do 
nothing. So when Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to not regard people from a human point of view, what he's saying is we don't regard them based on their performance. Because we can get trapped into looking at people and we can say, well, that person's actions and behaviors prove that, they have, that they're not in Jesus. John chapter 15, did you notice that he says, if you're in me, I will prune you so that you bear fruit, more fruit. So the only way that someone is, is not a believer is if there is no fruit of repentance of them saying, I have put faith in Christ and I'm following him. But what we have a tendency to do is look at people and say, well, there's not enough fruit yet. Well, there's not the right kind of fruit yet. I mean, you're calling that thing that God calls a sin, you're calling that good. You're not in the kingdom. And if you have ever, ever slandered someone, oh, but pastor, I believe slander's wrong, then why do we keep doing it? Why don't we stop in mid-sentence? Why don't we have an accountability partner that they hear us slandering someone? When's the last time we put someone out of the church because of greed? Because the Bible says greed is idolatry. I'm not saying that if the Bible calls it sin, call it good, participate in it. No, 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 no. Let me, let me show you because I don't want you to be confused by this. You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial Hebrews chapter 3, you must warn each other every single day while it's still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. See, if you continue to sow to your flesh what feels good, the Bible says from that you're going to reap death. But if you sow to the things of the Spirit, from that you're going to reap life. It doesn't mean if you do it one time, you're dead. No, past, present, future sins under the blood of Christ. And we're always looking for, well, where's the line? When did I go too far? How much can I do and get away with? You're asking the wrong question. And you're no longer compelled by love. You're compelled by fear. You're compelled by guilt. You're, com you're compelled by morality. Where's the line that I can't cross? Instead of saying, how can I get closer to be in him? Because it's when I'm in him that the fruit comes out of my life. So therefore, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the new, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God. Huh, all this is from God. All this is from God. All this is from God. I know when you go to church for 20 and 30 and 40 years, we start to be deceived and think, no, it's because I've, I've followed God. It's because I've obeyed God. It's because I've been a good person. I bet if I spent five minutes with you, <laughs> I guarantee I could find something in every life in this room and you could do it to me too where we're not living out the truth of this book. And if, if, if it depends on my ability to live it out perfectly, all of us are damned. That's the power of the gospel. And that doesn't mean that we should live however we want. No, because once we have tasted and seen what God has done for us, we are compelled by love. 
And the reason I think so many Christians are so angry at other people is not because they're immoral. It's because their immorality is infringing upon our ability to live how we want, which is a form of living for ourselves and not for him. I mean, what if they make it illegal to say that something is a sin? Well, then I guess we'll pay the price for that because we'll still say it's a sin. Well, what if they take away our tax-exempt status and, and make the church pay taxes? Then I guess we'll sell this building and we'll meet somewhere else because the church isn't a building. It's the place where the people of God come together. Now, can we speak out against it? Yeah. Do we fill our speech with hatred? Never. Never. I mean, Daniel put his life on the line and the church has been duped into living for ourselves, but just a moral version of it. That's why you can't look at this book as just a moral book. We can't look at the cross as a moral thing. I gotta get all my ducks in a row. Some of you have never been baptized before and you wrestle with baptism because you're like, well, Pastor Tom, I, I, I don't know if I'm ready for baptism. And that could be true. If you have not put faith in Christ and you've not surrendered your life to him and you're not ready to follow him, you're not ready for baptism. That's true, and I applaud you for that. But if you're not ready for baptism because you haven't put all your ducks in a row, you haven't understood the gospel because the gospel isn't getting your ducks in a row. It's throwing out the ducks and embracing the cross. That's the power of the gospel. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. And that actually empowers us to live in freedom. I no longer live for myself, even a moral version for myself. I live for him. Isn't that incredible? I just love it. I don't know about you, but I'm sorry. If you've never been in a church that gets that excited before, I'll try to calm it down the next time you come. And then Paul, I got to figure out where Paul goes on here. <laughs> Let me take my glasses off so I can see it. Here it is. This is the end of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Do you know what an ambassador is? An ambassador is someone who lives in another country. They're a foreigner and an alien, and they live on behalf of the country that they're from. You and I are Christ's ambassadors. We don't live here. Okay? We live in America, and we abide by the laws of America, just like a good ambassador in another country, but we are governed by another kingdom. And we are ambassadors as though God were making his appeal for us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Get your ducks in a row. No, 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 I'm sorry. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Stop sinning so that God won't judge you. Good luck with that. No, no, no. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's pretty profound, isn't it? And it doesn't mean that we can continue to sin. No, we, we, we can't because how can someone who's dead continue to live for themselves? We start living for him. Does that mean... That it, once I get baptized, I'm going to do it perfectly? I've told the baptism candidates this week, no. <laughs> In fact, I know this, this might like really scare some of you, 
But I want you to think about how your understanding of this book has changed over the, the years that you've been a Christian. And things that maybe you did when you first got saved and maybe you even thought they were okay to do. And then you came to realize, no, that's actually against what God is. I don't know about you, but in the last year of my life, my understanding of this book has grown. My understanding of the character of God has grown. And I've actually changed. And things that I actually used to think were okay for me to do, I no longer do. Not because I can say it's a black and white sin, but because it slows me down in my pursuit of being with him. There's a book that is called Regrace. Regrace. I'd encourage you, if you wrestle with this, to really grab a hold of that copy. Frank Viola is the author. And all it does is it takes all of the great men and women of the past, Spurgeon, Wesley, Billy Graham, Moody, and it tells us things that they actually taught from pulpits. That if I were to say it today, most of you would walk out and claim that I'm not even in the kingdom of God. And yet the people of the past that we celebrate grew in their understanding of God's word. What do we do with that? Well, here's what we do with that. The Lord disciplines those he loves. The Lord prunes those who bear some fruit so that they're even more fruitful. And it's easy for us as from a human point of view to look at someone and say, they are definitely not in the kingdom because look at that. They're, that's black and white in the Bible and they're saying that that's okay to do and, and they don't know God. Oh, be very careful where you draw your kingdom lines. This book says the only way you draw a kingdom line around someone is if they claim that there's some other way to heaven except through the blood of Jesus Christ and his blood alone. That's where we draw our lines. It's not, I don't know who's in. I don't know who's out. When I get to heaven, I am assured I'm going to see some people that I thought, how did you get here? You will too. And then we're going to be looking for somebody that went to church every single Sunday, the most moral person in all of the world. And we're going to be like, where, where, where are they? See, you can practice morality and still live for yourself. You haven't understood the gospel. You haven't been compelled by the love of God to now live for him. It's not about going to church. It's not about getting your ducks in a row. It's not about towing the line, being a good person. It's about being fully surrendered to the one who gave everything for you. And I'm not ashamed to tell you today that you have to give up everything. Every right, every freedom, every dream, every choice. Because to actually try to accept him any other way spits on what he did. Because he emptied himself. He emptied himself and he was brutally murdered in my place. And I used to think when I messed up, how many of you believe I mess up all the time? Don't raise your hand. I shouldn't look. I don't want to judge you. I used to think, man, why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep doing this? And I got to tell you a story and I'm going to end with this because it's 1130. This last week, I went to the James River Church on Tuesday night because they 
Sorry about that. If we can bring that down. Um, I went to the James River Church because they do worship every Tuesday night from 8 to 10. If you're looking for something to do, all they do is sing praise to God. It's great. And I walked in and I sat down and there was a young girl at the piano, probably 14 years old, and she was playing and singing and I was just kind of worshiping. And all of a sudden she started this simple chorus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And I instantly just began to weep. So overwhelmed by the understanding that my performance adds nothing to my salvation. That it's totally through the blood of Jesus. And mom, if you listen to this or watch this, I apologize for not asking for your permission, but I think you'll be okay. And my mom, my mom leads girls ministry at the church. Can you bring that volume down? My, my mom leads girls ministry at her church. And she was looking on Wednesday, it was gonna be a bad night because they had some problems. <laughs> By the way, if you're expecting it to be a, a bad night, you will prophesy that over your life. So I called her on my way home from church. I was tired, I was here late. It was, Wednesdays are long days. And I'm in the car on the way home and I called her and I said, so how'd it go? Not good. Just not good. And in long story short, she was sulking because she lost her temper. She acted ways that she shouldn't have acted. My mom's kind of a hothead. She always has been, but she will not always be, okay? And all of a sudden, something lit on the inside of me. And I started yelling at her. And I said, you know, if you're going to sit there and sulk until you have paid for your sin and discretion, and you're not going to believe that the blood of Christ covers you in this moment, then you just keep trampling on the cross. You need to get off the phone and you need to get in the Bible and you need to make sure that you're trusting in Christ alone to be your salvation. She's like, you're right. Okay, bye. <laughs> and I felt bad. I'm like, why, did I, why didn't I say it nicely? And I blamed it on my Tuesday night experience of being overwhelmed. She texted me within 20 minutes. I'll just read it to you. Twenty minutes. I declare Jesus has filled me with his spirit of power to change my world. I declare God causes his greatness to rise up from within me to reach the lost. I declare I'm anointed to influence my peers and transform my workplace. May these declarations and truth grow my confidence to take action and grow day by day for the blood of Jesus is enough to cover my sins. I fail, but he doesn't. Thanks, Tom. I needed that. Good night. I love you. I'm very tired. <laughs> my, mom, my mom texts my daughter every morning to encourage her and to pray over her and um, I love her for it. And uh, so I joked with Madeline and said, did grandma tell you I yelled at her this week? She's like, you yelled at her? And then she read me the text that her, she sent her. She didn't even think I yelled at her. She didn't hear me yelling at her. I thought I was yelling at her. 
But she heard it through the lens, the Holy Spirit, even in my failure, I shouldn't have yelled at her. I should have said it nicely. People need encouraged when they're beat down. But somehow he took my words and he used them just to break open her heart and know that the blood covers it. So I know some of you don't know who Restoration Church is. And what this book says is sin, we say is sin. But we trust that the Holy Spirit is going to lead you on a journey and we want to walk with you in that journey until everything that is in his character shows up in our lives. Everything. Everyone, the big ones and the little ones. So I want to invite you to stand with me. As we dismiss, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to dismiss in prayer and I'm going to release you to go. And uh, I know that some of you need to go. Thank you for being patient and, and waiting. But I'm going to play a song when we're done. And I want to encourage you, if you can stay for a few moments, just to make sure that the things that I've spoken today make sense to you. If you're in this room and you're not in relationship with God, you've never put faith in Christ, our prayer team is going to be here in the front. I'll be here in the front. And I'd love to explain it to you more. I'd love to talk to you more about it and explain how you can make that decision today. If you've never been baptized in water, the tank is full. And we'll find a way to get you baptized today. Because I don't want you to leave here today compelled by anything but the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of your word that declares that while we were your enemies, you died for us. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for willingly coming to this earth to give your life for us, to bring us back into relationship with God. Thank you for every one of these candidates today that have given themselves to you, have been baptized today. God, may they continue to be rooted in you and learn how to follow you every day of their lives. God, give them the grace they need to walk out every day forward. And I pray for those that are here today, God, that have never made that commitment. Holy Spirit, speak plainly and clearly to their hearts today. Bring them to that place of decision to surrender wholly to you, to put faith in the work of Jesus Christ for salvation. And now, God, I pray your blessing over this body of believers today. And I ask that you would bless them and keep them. I ask that you would cause your face to shine upon them. I ask that you'd lift up your countenance upon them, that you'd give them peace. And God, that you would be so gracious to them. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you want prayer, our prayer team is here in the front. If you need to be dismissed, you can go ahead and do that at this time. God bless you as you go.